it is time to get back into the book of Romans. And um, we are in Romans chapter 12. Now, you can get to Romans chapter 12, but it probably won't be till almost a half hour from now. I'm thinking that we will get into Romans chapter 12. But you can put your, your, your bulletin or something or your finger, your neighbor's finger in there and hold it because we're going to go back, basically. And, and I want to bring you up to speed. I want to review, basically, what, what we've covered. Now, we started Romans back in... December, I think it was, and we were going through Romans, and every once in a while we'd do something different on a Thursday night, but in, Je- in June, we took a sabbatical from, from Romans. We took a time out to do this summer series, and I quite honestly believe that that summer series fit right into what we're going to be going into uh, tonight in Romans chapter 12. And so um, the theme of the book, the, the book of Romans, is the gospel of God. The gospel of God, the good news of God. It has also been referred to as the gospel according to grace. Um, because of what is, is, is packed into the book of Romans, it, there is so much grace that we learn from it. There's so many doctrinal things that, that we see in the book of Romans, and we're going to cover some of those words and, and, and doctrines of, of the Bible. But the overall theme is that there is grace covering all of this. And grace is getting what you do not deserve. That is grace. Unmerited favor. God's favor upon you when you don't deserve a bit of it. That's grace. And so this is what this book is, the gospel according to grace. If you've never read the book of Romans, it would be good. I mean, I'm, I'm overviewing it, but it'd be good for you to come back and just like, Lord, show me that grace. Talk to me about what this grace is all about because I need it. The author of the letter is the Apostle Paul. He wrote it about A.D. 57 or 58, somewhere around there while he was on his third missionary journey. He landed in, in, in uh, Corinth, the city of Corinth, which is by Greece or in Greece area. And he had been there for a time, for a little time there. And from there he wrote this book. Um, and more than likely he sent it with a sister in the Lord by the name of Phoebe, who, who was near Corinth, in a place called Sincaria, or Sincara, and, and more than likely, she seemed to be like some kind of a business person, was headed up on business to Rome, um, and, and more than likely, she would be visiting some of the believers that were up in Rome already. So Paul, having written this letter, hands it to her to, to take it up to the brothers and sisters in Rome. Uh, Paul had never visited Rome which is kind of ironic that he has his heart for Rome, for these people, but he has never met them. It's quite possible he knew a lot because at the end of, the, of, of this book, we're going to see a long list of people that he knew because, again, there were so many people that would go to Rome. I mean, the old saying is that all roads lead to Rome. And, and it was true back then. I mean, they, they created a lot of the, the, the streets and, and, and just all the roads and, 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 and just that whole area. 
And so he had never been there. He hadn't started the church, no doubt. Uh, At this time of his writing, it is believed that no other apostle had been up there either. So Paul was not building on another man's foundation who had gone up there or anything. Um, He was was just going to share what God had laid on his heart in that sense. Um, More than likely, they were... It was a church or home churches that he was uh, going to distribute this to. And it's quite possible that the church up there or the church of Rome up there got started by some of the people who were down at the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches a message. It tells us all these people that were there and there was some Romans that were there, people from Rome that were there. And it's quite possible that they stayed in Jerusalem for a time to grow as the church was birthed. And when the time came, they went back home and they started these little home churches. Those who had received the message that Peter had shared were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they may have gotten taught by them, but the Holy Spirit was going to be their teacher. And they went back. And they had the Holy Scriptures, which were the the Old Testament, the OT. And so they would teach out of that the Lord Jesus. And so, because all the roads led to Rome, I'm sure that many of the believers who came through, like Phoebe, would be strengthening the brethren, especially because she had this letter that was written by Paul that was addressed to the church. And so she was going to go and strengthen them. And Paul's desire had been to go to Rome. But up until this point, he had not been there. And his heart was to go up there and impart a spiritual gift, and to establish the grace of God. And that's what the spiritual gift was. He wanted them to understand grace. Guys, if you understand grace, if you could capture what grace is in your life, um, again, you, you are ahead of the curve because you understand who God is if you understand grace. And that's the spiritual gift that he wanted to get, get to them. It's interesting that Paul uh, was, Ro- was born as a Roman citizen, yet he had never been to Rome. It's uh, believed that his father had obtained Roman citizenship. And, uh, and so maybe that's why he had such a heart for Rome and the Roman people. Um, there's no special group that he's writing to here. Oftentimes when he's writing letters, he's telling them this is going to these people or this church or this group of churches or whatever. It, there's no specific people that he's writing to except uh, to the church. That, that, that is in Rome. And it's made up of Jews and Gentiles. And so he's addressing all of them as believers in Rome, which was the capital city of the Roman Empire. Um, so as you, you look at chapter 1, I mean, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in those, in those places, but as you look at chapter 1, he, he gives a lengthy, lengthy uh, introduction, which is the, the longest of all his introductions, uh, he wrote most of the, the New Testament, but he, he spent seven, seven verses, basically, in this introduction um, as he's introducing himself as a bondservant. Um, he, he's talking about how he has been an, an, an apostle separated for the gospel, for the good news. And, uh, and so he is going to write to them, and he kind of gives them a little description of, of who he is and his heart and stuff like that. But um, right after verse 7, from verses 8 to 17, 
he kind of sets the theme for this book as to why he is writing it to them. And when you look at verse 11 and 12, he says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. That is, that you may be encouraged together, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of uh, of you and of me. And again, he's telling them, I so want to be there for you to give you this gift. And and again, it's it's the gospel, but it's grace. The gospel, the, the, the good news that 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 if you understand grace, man, you're, you're, you're going to understand what God wants for your life. And I like the fact that he says, I want to encourage you because we have this mutual faith. Even though Paul was this great apostle, he's saying, I'm right with you. I, I, I don't have a greater faith than you do. Although some people would think that of the pastor or the leader or something. It's like, oh, you must have some amazing faith. It's like, no, it's just the same as yours. God has just called me to a different position in the body of Christ. And so Paul, I like that, that he doesn't put himself above these guys. He says we have the same mutual faith. What saved Paul was going to save them, was going to save the people down in, in that area. And, and it's the same faith that saves you. And so um, he shares that with them. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians to the wise and the unwise, so as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Again, that spiritual gift that he wanted to impart to them was the grace of God because the righteousness of God has been revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the gospel of God. That righteousness, that that right standing, uh, that that, that holiness of who God is, um, that would be the righteousness of God. Um, from, From there, the book can and and is broken up into five sections and the first part the first section is from verse 18 of chapter 1 to chapter 3 verse 20 that's that's the first section and in that section paul the apostle paul basically takes us into a courtroom setting and and he begins to build this case and he he begins to talk about the 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 gentile the pagan the, the unruly pagan or the immoral pagan. And, and he begins to say, man, this is how, how wicked they are without God. And he goes after them. And then, and then he kind of goes on to the, the moral pagan. Pagan nonetheless, but the more like, no, we don't do what those dirty dogs do. We're a little better. But what he is building the case of is that you guys are guilty under, under the law of God. Under the righteousness of God, you guys are guilty. And then he, he, he goes on and he, he taught, starts talking to the Jew who thought was, well, yeah, I, we understand about the pagan Gentiles because they're dirty dogs already. Us Jews, well, we're God's chosen people. And he begins to like build a case against them that they should have known 
what God said, but they rejected it, and so they too were guilty. And because they are now guilty, just like the righteousness of God that was revealed, so was the wrath of God revealed at, uh, at the people who are guilty. For Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is, is revealed from heaven against the all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so just like the, 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 the righteousness of God is revealed, the wrath of God is, is also revealed to those who are guilty. And this is what Paul comes to the conclusion um, at the end of, of, or in the middle of chapter 3, um, where, where he is just building this case against them. And the verdict is, in, in, in um, chapter 3, verses 9 through, 10, uh, to, through 12, it says, What then? We, uh, are we better than they? Not at all. The Jews were saying that. For we have previously charged both Jew and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. The verdict is, you're all guilty. We're all guilty. And any of us hidden here who think that we're okay, that we're pretty good, it's like, oh no, you're a liar. Because it just told us none are righteous. Not one, not you. <laughs> you're not the exception to the rule. You're, the verdict is, you're guilty. You're guilty before God. And, and you're better off just admitting you're guilty unless you want to stand before God and plead your case. Because we're already being told here that we are so guilty. And so we better just fess up to it. Because, again, at the end here, um, in, in verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so he says, busted. What you deserve is the wrath of God. Hooray. <laughs> it's like, man, whoa. We're all guilty before God. There's none righteous. And so it, 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 when you finish that part, we get into verse 21. Uh, of chapter 3 to chapter 5, verse 21. And, and then that second part, that section reveals the righteousness of God apart from the law, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the good news. The bad news is you're guilty. The bad news is, is that you deserve judgment. The bad news is that you deserve to spend eternity in hell. That's the bad news. The good news is that we're not under the law. See, the Jews and all these people were trying to measure up. And all the law could do is show, show us that we're guilty. And so here, uh, he shows us that the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is what will save us, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Someone else will have to pay the price for your sin. For the debt that you cannot pay, somebody else, because you fall short every time. Every time you will fall short. If you think that you're okay, you're not. And so you need somebody else because you cannot measure up to that standard of, of God's righteousness. 
And so now God's righteousness has to be come down or has to come down and has to be apart from the law. It has to be beyond the law, something separate from the law because you cannot stand before the righteous one. And it is the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who paid that price. He was the satisfactory, uh, uh, the, 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 the sufficient payment. God was satisfied with that payment because it was holy. That, that, that's what the word propitiation means in verse 25, that he paid that, that, that price. He was satisfied with that payment. And then we were redeemed. Uh, we were bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, that's what the word redemption means. Um, those who believe in him through faith, apart from the law, will now be justified. And we covered that word justified. And to break it down, it's as if you, uh, just as if you have never sinned. That's what the word justified means. That you are now not guilty. Not because you thought, oh, look at how good I am is because of the righteousness of God. And so what he told us that, again, another doctrine, because all these are, 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 are some of the doctrines of, of the Bible, the propitiation, the redemption, the, the uh, justification. Um, just because we believe by faith, we get to be accounted, or the, the righteousness of God is accounted upon us. Just like Abraham, um, it was imputed into him because he believed God. It was put into his account, the, the doctrine of imputation. And so there you go with that one. Um, uh, now faith in Jesus Christ would rule the day. Uh, no more law. No more law. You didn't have to. And the justified believer has been declared by the judge himself to have nothing laid to his charge. Isn't that amazing? Just think of, I mean, I, I know you, it won't take you long, but just think of the, the sins that you've committed today. <laughs> won't take you long. When you come before God, and, and, and again, you come in Jesus' name, you, you've confessed your sins, and he, he opens up your file, he does not see your sin because you've been justified. You know what he sees? The righteousness of God. The righteousness, it's like there's righteousness there because Jesus is the righteousness of God. And so he just sees Jesus, and then he sees you. And so, man, oh, man. Again, we should be like singing hallelujah right now, but we won't because I won't finish my Bible study here. <laughs> and so we don't come in our own righteousness. We come because, and we can, because of the righteousness of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That is the grace of God, people. You, you, you get to live under grace. And it's interesting because here the grace of God is revealed. Man could not receive or experience any of that because he doesn't deserve the righteousness of God. But now, because we have all these things, propitiation, we have redemption, we have justification, we have imputation, we have all those things, because of that, now we can experience peace with God. We get access by faith. And we have the hope of glory. And that's all grace. Go over to chapter 5, verse 20, where it says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Great news. Awesome news. We get to the third part, chapter 6 through to 8. And here in this section, um, we get to understand what it means to live a justified life. You see, it's one thing to be declared not guilty and then continue to live the same life you had been living before. That's one thing. It's another thing to have a new lease on life. Knowing how guilty you are and He has forgiven you of all that. There should be something that happens in you because of that. There's, so, there, there's that portion from being justified and the, we're going to look at the word sanctification, but somewhere in the middle of there, there's a regeneration that happens. That man, you are no longer who you used to be because you know how guilty you were and how free you are now. And so there has to be this regeneration. Again, another biblical truth, another doctrine. Uh, of the Bible. And so, again, we need to walk in that justified life. And so this section shows to us what it means to be sanctified, the doctrine of being sanctified, to be set apart from the world and for God. We no longer have to walk the way the world dictates. We can walk according to what God dictates and what He says. And so sanctification is different from justification. Justification is a one-time deal. The judge says, not guilty. Boom, done. Sanctification, on the other hand, is, is kind of a process. When you accepted Jesus, you were sanctified. You were set apart. While you're walking in this world, you are being sanctified. <laughs> you know, you, you are growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And then when you breathe your last and you get to heaven, you will be totally sanctified. So we're sanctified all the way around, right? And so it's interesting because chapter 6 kind of talks about about when you were saved. Chapter 7 talks about the battles that we go through through this life as we're being sanctified. And chapter 8 tells you, man, here's the glory, man. You are totally sanctified because there is no more condemnation at all through any of that. And so we can now walk without being condemned. Even though Satan condemns us all the time. Uh, uh, chapter 1 or chapter 8 Verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, period, exclamation point, um, whatever, put arrows to it. It's like you don't have to be condemned anymore. And then one of my favorite portions of Scripture at the end of chapter 8, uh, where it says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sakes, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. That's, that's what happens when we're sanctified. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. There is nothing unless we let it. Unless we let it. Man. <laughs> so we get into the fourth part, chapters 9 through 11. Now, that was, those were kind of a difficult... Uh, portion to go through for some, but I totally dug it. Um, 
Here we have the Apostle Paul going back, talking about the nation of Israel and, and the problem that they had with unbelief and how God, in His sovereignty, even though He knew everything about them, He still chose them. Isn't that interesting? Because He knew everything about you and He still chose you. And it's like, that's ridiculous because I wouldn't have. Right? And that's why I think I'm so glad for the sovereignty of God. I'm so glad that I've been predestined. I'm so glad that He chose me before the foundation of the world because if He would have waited until afterwards, He might have hesitated and said, no, thank you, buddy. I don't, I don't want to deal with, with Zeke. <laughs> He's too, too much to handle. And yet, because of the sovereignty of God, man, He chose people still. And so these chapters uh, do deal with the... Um, the sovereignty of God as well as the responsibility of man. There are some who would pit those two themes or those two um, things against each other. That it's all the sovereignty of God or it's all the, the responsibility of man. And, and they kind of work hand in hand because we see both here in these chapters. In chapter 9 and then chapter 10, we see uh, God's sovereignty in chapter 9, the responsibility of man in chapter 10. And, and, and I like what Spurgeon said because people have had a problem with this whole thing. I like what Spurgeon said, uh, Charles Spurgeon. He says, uh, when somebody asked him, hey, how do, you, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God with the responsibility of man? And he says, you never have to reconcile friends. They're already friends. The Bible teaches both, and so do we. We teach both. That there's a sovereignty of God. If I told you I understood it, I'd be lying to you because I can't. It is way beyond me because that is infinite. And, and He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-everything, and I am not. <laughs> and so I accept the sovereignty of God, but I understand that there's a responsibility. How does that work? I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> so we'll move on from there. Um, and these chapters do cover, like I said, they cover um, uh, the, the, na- the nation of Israel. It covers the past, present, and future of Israel. Because chapter 11, pretty hardcore, man. It's kind of talking about the, the salvation of Israel. And, and it's kind of going into the millennial time and, and into the future. And so chapter 9 is, you know, as he's talking about Israel, is the past. Chapter 11, or chapter 10 is the present. And then chapter uh, 11 is the future. But... Um, we're, we're not to uh, apply these chapters really to the church because it really doesn't have to do with us. It's dealing with the nation of Israel. But there's nothing wrong with us gleaning some principles, learning from the example of Israel and how God even chose them. There's principles that we can gain from all of it, even though it's not really directly applied to that. Which brings us, and it, and dude, I did it like in a half hour, which brings us, I'm so stoked right now, <laughs> which brings us to part five. Part five. Part five is from chapter um, chapter twelve to like chapter fifteen, uh, somewhere around uh, chapter fifteen, uh, verse thirteen, and then after ver- uh, chapter thirteen or chapter five, fifteen, thirteen. After that is the conclusion. So about half a, uh, a chapter and a half. This section deals with... i got to catch my breath. Hold on, I'm going to drink some water. You thought I was a little excited and talking fast before. Wait until we get into this portion. 
<clears throat> this, this section deals with the Christian life, the practical aspect. It deals with the service that we are to do for the glory of God. Basically, all that we have covered in the summer series, like I said earlier, uh, a lot of what we covered in the summer series, what we've co- been covering on Sunday mornings in First John, has, has, has come around to Christ, our Christian life. How, how are we to act? What are we to do? How are we to function in this world? Give me some direction, God. And He gives it to us. He gives it to us through all of Ephesians. He's talking to us. He's been talking to us through James and First and Second Peter, and now as we're into First John, He is giving us instruction. And people, 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 I wish I could just make you understand how important it is for you to walk in this Christian life and to do the service to the glory of God, uh, that we may know uh, what we know because of who we are in in Christ. And so, Romans chapter twelve, verses one and two. We're just covering two verses. Um, There's no way I would have gone even more. (sighs) I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I want to shout it from the housetops. I think my voice went up a little louder when I started this, man, because it's like, ah, man. How many of you guys are familiar with these two verses? Some of you guys are familiar with these two verses. Again, they they are just like epic up there. Um, And they belong there because, again, it, it just kind of gets us to this point that, uh, he's going to start telling us, this is what you ought to do. And it's interesting because he starts off by saying, I beseech you therefore, brethren. And that word beseech means, I plead with you, brethren. I encourage you. I urge you. I appeal to you. I am begging you, brethren. I am begging you. Here we have the great apostle Paul, one of the, the leaders of the church of Jesus Christ. Having written what he has written, it, it, it just floors me because here he is beseeching us and yet he could be commanding us because of his, his stance with the church. If anyone was close to, 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 to God, in my opinion, it, it, it was Paul. Again, having written what he has written, he heard from the Holy Spirit so intimately because we are studying this as the Word of God. And it's like, how close was this cat, you know, to God that he could hear God and write these things down? And we look at it and said, this is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. And so if anybody had the authority to command us to do anything, it would be the Apostle Paul. And yet, we see here that he is beseeching us. And you're going, Paul, you're like the man. You're like the grand poobah, you know, that, that, of, of Christendom. Besides Jesus Christ, you are like grand poobah for you Flintstone fans, right? <laughs> but, but some of the young kids, it's like, I should be in the backpack there. I have no clue who the Flintstones are. But be that as it may, I told you guys, you guys should have been back there. Um, <laughs> we tell jokes that you guys don't understand. That's good. Um, but anyways, here we have him beseeching his brethren. 
He is begging his brethren and pleading with them. And can you imagine this poor old apostle? Picture him on his knees, basically beseeching his brethren, kind of grabbing onto their their sleeve on the shirt. It's like, I'm begging you. And you're thinking, Paul, you're the apostle. Get up, bro. He says, no, this is how serious it is. I am begging you. I am begging you by the mercies of God that you present yourself. And, 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 and you know, as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking in, in my office and even at home, as I'm going through, the, I'm going, Lord, I would do that to my brothers and sisters. I beg you by the mercies of God. I beg you, man. I, you know, I, 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 I don't have authority over you. I really don't. <laughs> you guys can do, go do whatever you want. God's placed me in a place of authority. And, and he's put me responsible for this, but I cannot make you do anything. And I wish I could sometimes. <laughs> I wish I could. But I'm like the Apostle Paul here. I beseech you. I can only beseech you. I can only beg you to do what the Word of God do, uh, says. I can't make you do it. And I wish I could. But I can't. When he was writing to his, his brother Philemon, This is what he says to him. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you. I'd rather appeal to you. (laughs) I like like what he says after that to Philemon, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I, I, I think he was sarcastic there. It's like, man, I could command you. I'm going to appeal to you for love's sake. I'm going to beg, beg you for love's sake. Although you know I'm old and I'm in prison. You should do what I tell you to do. <laughs> it's, it's like, doesn't it sound like that? It's like, hey, you know, I'm not going to command you. I'm just going to appeal to you. But you know that I'm old. You know I'm a prisoner. And there's another portion in there. This is not even on my notes and I should stick to my notes. But he says, he says, you know what I've done. So take Onesimus and take him in. You owe me a lot, but I'm not going to bring that up, really. I'm not. But here he is. He's begging them by the mercies of God. What, what, what are those mercies of God? All that he has talk, talked about in the first 11 chapters, all of that is the mercy of God. Mercy, mercy is not getting what you deserve, guys. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And what he has shared with us from chapter 1 to chapter 11 is, is, is God not bringing his wrath upon the people. He didn't give them what they deserved. He brought his grace. He gave them what they didn't deserve. And so he's saying, I'm begging you by all these mercies that we've been talking about, by the mercies of God. Everything, especially from chapter uh, 3.21 to the end of chapter 8, especially. When we learned all the, the doctrine of the church, of all the things that he has given to us, you would think that it would just be an automatic response from the Christian to God, knowing the mercies of God, knowing what God has done on our behalf, with the fact that Jesus, that God sent His Son, Jesus, to die for our debt, 
that those who have come to him, who have experienced his mercies, that it would be automatic to offer themselves, to present themselves, to be in total gratitude, total gratitude for what he's done. And yet we have this old apostle saying, I beg you, I beg you by the mercies of God, do it. Present yourself, offer yourself, give everything you have to him. And you're thinking, yeah, we should. But do we? But do we? Knowing everything that he has forgiven you for, how is it that you don't present yourself to, to God? Here I am, Lord. Here I am. Do, do whatever you want with me. God, God, you see, God is not the one that's asking the believer for sacrifice. He never, he, he never asked the believer to sacrifice anything. Paul's the one that's asking. God's the one that so loved the world that he gave everything. He gave his son. And yet he never asked anything in return. He, he, he had no guarantee that man would bow down and worship him and thank him for sending his son to die for our sins. He never asked for anything in return. That's agape love because agape love has no strings attached. And so he loves you unconditionally and he doesn't make you come to him. If I were God, if I gave my son, dude, you're going to serve me because I gave my son and it cost me quite a bit. And so you should be bowing down and presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, because if it's not living, I'll kill you and make you a dead sacrifice. <laughs> See, but, but, but he doesn't ask that of us, right? He, he, he's not asking. Paul's the one that's begging us that we should be doing that. We should be offering ourselves to him. He's begging the believer, present your bodies a living sacrifice. That is your reasonable service. That is your reasonable... See, Paul understood sacrifices, man. He understood. He knew the history behind them. He was going to be a Pharisee. The Jews knew all about sacrifices. They lived the OT. They, they understood what it meant to kill an animal and then present it to God. They understood that. They seen it. As little kids, man, they were seeing blood all over the, the place, man, because they were killing and killing and killing. Uh, sacrifice after sacrifice and presenting them. Here, here you go, God. Forgive me of my sins. So they understood sacrifice. And it wasn't until, until Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he got knocked off his high horse. The first thing, as Jesus begins to talk to him, the first thing he says to him, one of the first things he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? He presented himself that moment and said, here I am. He knew something was up. <laughs> he had been fighting against Jesus. So I think when Jesus presented himself to him, he knew who he was. He had been fighting against him for a long time. So when Jesus reveals himself to him, he presents himself and says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Here I am. Here I am. And, and, and Jesus tells him, go. He doesn't say, hey, go kill yourself and give yourself to me. He just says, go, and I need you to go do these things. And from then on, Paul was never the same. He presented himself, and he continued to present himself throughout his years. And that word present means to give into one's presence, to show, to offer, to yield, to dedicate, to provide, to sin, to prove. But it also carries this Present yourself once and for all. Once and for all. Present yourself. Once and for all. Jump in. Both feet. Do it all. You, you, you see, we often are willing to present ourselves until it really begins to cost us something. 
When God starts saying, hey, I want, I want it. Because again, he's not asking for your sacrifice. He's not asking. But if you present yourself, he wants it all. He doesn't want part of you. He doesn't want you to come and present part of you. It's like, well, I'll give you this much at this time when it's convenient to me. He says, I don't want it. (laughs) Don't play games with me. If you're going to present yourself, give it all to me. Because if you're not going to give it all, keep it. I don't need it. Guys, he doesn't need us. But if you're going to present yourself as a living sacrifice to him, get ready to be used because he's not... He's not going to play a game. And if you're going to do it, do it once and for all. Once and for all. All of it. All, all in. All in. Don't hold nothing back. You see, God has no pleasure in dead sacrifices. He had no pleasure in dead animals. In, in, in da- de- animal sacrifices. Not since he had offered a living sacrifice himself. His son. <laughs> he offered his son. He offered a living sacrifice so that we can have a relationship with him. And the only other time that we see a living sacrifice is when, uh, when Abraham takes Isaac and goes to, to offer him before the Lord. And Isaac, again, a picture of Jesus, does it willingly. He's like, he's like in his, his late 20s, early tw- uh, eight, no, late teens, maybe early 20s, when he is offered up. And his dad is old. I mean like old. I mean like ancient. I mean like hidden a hundred past a hundred and he could have took him you know and it's like you're kidding me dad i'm not getting on that altar but he he submitted himself as a living sacrifice and he was good as dead but god saved him and so again the only living sacrifices we see is jesus christ and isaac who is a picture of jesus christ he did it willingly and so did jesus and then he says present yourselves a living sacrifice holy acceptable to god and that word holy means sacred physically pure morally blameless, religiously ceremonial, or consecrated, which is the word sanctified, which means set apart. That's what the word holy here means. And then acceptable, which means agreeable, well-pleasing. Once again, (laughs) the only way that we can present our bodies a living sacrifice before God is because, because God sacrificed first that's the only way we can go and sacrifice that's the only way we can present ourselves because he did it first with his son Um, and to be holy and acceptable before him it's because god has done that in our account he's made us sanctified he's made us uh, acceptable in the beloved and so because of all these things what should be our reasonable and logical response bow down worship him bow down and worship him because again uh where where it says this is your reasonable service i like the way the uh, niv puts it this is your spiritual act of worship this is your spiritual act of worship what's logical for us to do is that we would worship him worship 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 and chapter verse two oh geez it says and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. I'll catch up. Uh, if I don't finish, I'm going to pick it up next week because this is really important too. Um, <laughs> I told these guys, hey, get an extra song because what if I finish early? It's like, <clears throat> and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God in Colossians 
1.15. And Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the express image of his person. Okay? Romans 8.29 says, uh, For whom he foresaw, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We, we have become the image of God because he lives and dwells in us. He is the express image of God. And yet, because he lives in us, we take on that image. We take that, that, that persona of, of who Jesus is in our lives. And so, again, he's saying, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed into the image of God of his son. That's what he's saying. He's, you know, because we have been born molded after this world. Uh, but when we came to Christ, um, we were taken out of darkness into light from life to death. We were transformed. Okay. The encouragement that Paul is saying here, why would you want to be conformed, fashioned, molded back into what the world tells you you should be after coming to Christ? After surrendering, coming out of darkness into life, from life, from death to life, why, why would you want to be conformed to this world? Why? Why? To, to, to look like the world, to, to look as close to the world as we possibly can. It's like, guys, we've already been there. Many of us who came out of the world, we've already been there. We've already conformed to this world when we were getting raised up and, 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 and just going after all that the world wanted us to do. We were conformed to it. And then we came to Christ and it's like, whoa, a transformation took place. And yet, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And that word to be transformed means uh, to keep on being transformed. That word in the Greek is metamorphosos or something like that. We get our word metamorphosis from. To be transformed from the inside out. Um, it, it, it's uh, the, the word transfigured can also be used in that word. You see, the world never gives up. It never gets tired of wanting to conform Christians back to what they used to do and be. It never gets tired of it. And, Jane, and Satan jumps on that bandwagon too. And you know what? Our stinking flesh likes it. We, we want to be conformed back to this world. Because, again, it, it satisfies us. It satisfies our flesh, our, our desires to be conformed to what the world is doing. And yet, John, 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, we'll get it in a couple of weeks. It says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. Again, it is very natural for us to become like the world because we came out of it. We were molded into this world. It's very natural. What is not natural is for you to walk in a spiritual manner. That's not natural. That's not, that's not right. It doesn't come that easy. That's why we have to be transformed. We have to be transformed, not like, let me look like a Christian. We have to be transformed by the renewing of the mind, it says here. It has to start from the inside. That's where the transformation takes place. Because, I'm spitting all over the place. Because, again, it's like this is where it has to change and it comes down to our hearts to change us from within. 
We can look the same way as we did before, but the inside should be different. There should be a transformation that has taken place within our hearts. How do, how do we do that? We let the, this mind be in us, which was also in Christ. We have the mind of Christ. It has been offered to us. We, we cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and we bring every thought into captivity and under the obedience of, of Christ. Th- those three statements that I made are from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, and 2 Corinthians 10, 5. And then Ephesians chapter 4, verses 21 to 22 says, If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may put on the new man which is, in, which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Man, oh man. That you may prove, it says, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that word prove means to test Examine, scrutinize, recognize. In other words, that you may recognize what is His will by the renewing of your mind. That you may recognize that. Because guys, if you're being conformed to this world, guess what? You're not seeking the will of God. You can't even recognize it because it clouds everything up. Everything gets clouded up in your life because you're being transformed because you want to look like the world. And he says, no, be transformed. And when you're transformed in, in, in your mind, you will be able to recognize the will of God. You will be able to recognize it. Why? Because your mind, you're putting on the mind of Christ. You're, 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 you're filling your, your mind you know, with, with Christ. Let me read to you these last two verses, or these two verses in the Amplified, because it is killer, 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 in the Amplified. Verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg of you, in view of all the mercies of God, that you be, that you, to make a decisive dedication of your bodies presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice holy devoted consecrated and well-pleasing to god which is your reasonable rational intellect uh, intelligent service and spiritual worship verse 2 and do not be conformed to this world this age fashioned after and adapted to or adopted to its external superficial customs, but be transformed, changed by the entire renewing of your mind, by the new ideals and the new attitudes, so that you may prove for yourself what is the good, the acceptable, and perfect will of God, even the things which is good, even the thing which is good, and acceptable and perfect in His sight for you. Once again, guys, as we close in prayer, I truly believe that God is challenging us as a church. I wish the church was full right now so everybody can hear this. I believe that God continues to give us this message 
Where are you at with him? Are you giving yourself to, over to him? Are you in Christ so you know that you know him? Where are you at? Guys, we, we, we've been encouraged this, this evening to present ourselves to him. Have you done that? Have you done that totally? Again, you came to him, but are you continuing to do that in your life on a regular basis? It happens by being renewed day by day. Not just once a month, not just once a week, not just when, whenever you, you get around to it, because I, I, I guarantee you, you will be more conformed to this world than to Christ if you let that happen. Good news is, he still loves you. I don't know why, but he does. He totally, totally does. And he loves me, and that I don't understand, but I will take it all the time, all the time. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Woo. Jesus, thank you so much, Lord, for just allowing us to cover all that we got to cover tonight, Lord. God, I pray that even in, in talking fast and stuff that the people were able to keep up, Lord God. Um, but if not, Lord God, that they were able to capture some of the things that came up, Lord God, during this message, Lord God. I pray, Father, right now that your, that, that, that your people who are called by your name, Lord God, that they would humble themselves, Lord, and come before you, presenting themselves holy, acceptable to you, Lord. That, that God, the reasonable service would be that right now they would bow down and worship you. That, Lord, they would present themselves and say, Lord, here I am. There's not much, but, but take what you can, Lord. Take it all. I pray for them, Lord. If there's anybody that doesn't know, know, know you right now, Lord God, I pray that even this evening you would capture their heart. You would show them, Lord God, just how truly you love them. And that, God, you, you gave all. You gave your son. And you did it all so that we can have a relationship with you. And so, Jesus, please be with our people here, Lord God. Please be with those who may not know you, Lord God, that they would come to know you through this time. We bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, if you need prayer for anything, man, people are up here, man.